Explore the depths of your curiosity with aerospace engineer John Connolly, Columbia Space Center's Benjamin Dickow, and CEO of Heavy Metal Magazine, Matthew Medney, as they bring scientists, engineers, and authors on a journey of discovery. This is Putting the Science in Science Fiction, where fiction and science collide. Welcome back to Putting the Science in Science Fiction. Uh, we have my co-host, Benjamin Dickow of the Columbia Space Center, John Connolly, Lockheed Martin, and myself, Matt Medney from Heavy Metal Magazine. Uh, welcome back, guys. How are you doing today? Good. Thank you. Pretty good. Thanks for continuing to call. <laughs> <laughs> well, I guess I won't be the um I won't be the only one calling anymore, not only from Earth it seems. Uh for our first topic today, um the news of a actual <laughs> space hotel that could be pulled from the early uh moments of Ender's game or even the uh later moments of Elysium seem to be within our grasp. Um I was talking to John about it on Thursday last week and there's few times that he says things that are science related and a point of view of awe and mm. like I really didn't think I was going to be alive to see something like that and this was one of those moments so yeah. I want to kick it over to the two scientists here and you know let's talk about like how real is it what are the hurdles and then for anyone who's a pseudoscientist and a uh who thinks he's a scientist like myself the first question they'll all have is but the nasa astronauts work out six hours a day to not have their bones deteriorate so how is this gonna work right <laughs> how's it gonna work <laughs> you're gonna put people in a capsule and send them up um I, you know how so i think in the very least yeah so there's, I mean, didn't they just, they had some sort of an inflatable uh, module that was tested out on the International Space Station a few years ago that was supposed to be this sort of hotel kind of thing. Um, I mean, I think obviously getting people up there to spend a short amount of time is not a big deal. I even think that you could probably get around some of the workout regimen. Um, you know, if you're going up for like a couple of days and you come back down, just like any sort of like, it's a long weekend. Just going to go, you know, several hundred miles above. So I think it's totally possible. I think, you know, what one of the things that really struck me about this is, well, two things. One, you know, this in the past couple of weeks, there's been all this talk about these passenger missions that are going to happen by the end of the year. Right. So there's the uh, I think the SpaceX one that's going to happen where they're auctioning off a couple of seats or they gave them away to some people. There's a Japanese concept. I think that's supposed to be later this year. That seems kind of risky because it's not really tested technology yet um, and stuff like that. So it is definitely picking up momentum. Um, I think, yeah, I mean, are we going to get sort of the large scale 2001, you know, style? What was that? The Hilton or something like that in space? um with pan am maybe eventually yeah pan, with pan am exactly <laughs> um full retro but i mean i think something you know putting people in a in a can somewhere in orbit for a little while is going to be great i mean that's it's like virgin's business model right was just to totally. get people in for like 15 minutes um so i think that's another thing that's striking me about this is that there's a lot of talk about oh you know you know this is can't believe this is happening but 
you know, Virgin started in 2000, 1999 or something like that with this with this project, basically to do to bring tourists up in the space. So it's when you think about it, they've been working on this for 20 years. It's like, OK, it makes sense that they're already starting to, to come to fruition a little bit. So I have a lot of questions on everything <laughs> you just said, but I have. But 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 before we dive into the, the details on this, I want to ask a broad question to John. Um, so as we talked about uh, last week, John, there was a certain level of acceptability with death when it came to the evolution mm. of the uh, commercial airplane. Right. There have been a lot of planes that have gone down and, you know, thousands of people over the course of the last 40 to 50 years have perished from a faulty engine, a, um, you know, um, something blowing up, a plane hitting a bird. Sensors freezing. Yeah, exactly. And, and you know, all of those were kind of like for the, the greater good of science. Like we're going to keep pushing forward. This stuff happens. But now we live in a world that is so adverse to any real pain, even though it perpetuates pain. Do you see a a, a roadblock or a quote unquote great filter in our aversion to stomach the first casualty that will inevitably happen mm -hmm. from something like this? How do you feel about that, John? I feel that Yes, we are going to have to dial back the level of risk that we're able to mitigate. Because, I mean, I don't think we're going to get ourselves to a Six Sigma in a level of one in every three million, you know, like the chances of, of dying on a commercial plane crash. I mean, only now really in the past five years has the United States, I mean, you still saw a couple engines here and there that went, there was obviously... Um, there was a flight that just recently happened. There was the Southwest flight before that. Mm -hmm. But we haven't had a plane go down in the United States in several years. And it used to be about like once per year. But in a, um, mm -hmm. to that effect, I don't think, you know, the, the amount of uh, times that we would have to have space travel happen before we could even get to those numbers of being like, you know, we've had a million flights, only right. one has failed. And I mean, that was kind of the thing with the shuttle. Once the second shuttle, once Columbia blew up, I think it dropped the chances. It made the statistical odds of dying on a shuttle flight now become so many orders of magnitude less than um, right. than dying on a commercial plane crash, uh, which gave everybody a lot of pause. Now, the key here is really, you know, your you know, these are now multi-billion. These are probably billionaires, millionaires, people who are willing to shell out X number of millions of dollars for a seat. They mm. are also going to demand risk, personal risk reduction differently than astronauts of a program do. Because the astronauts themselves, <laughs> I believe, have their own belief of what their personal risk is and understand the risk. NASA, it's, NASA mm -hmm. itself as the entity, though, I believe, operates under a different level of risk and you know is so much more subject to you know, public domain and, and what public perception is. But sure. it is really strange as to like why the public at some point, how the public, which it, you know, accidents at NASA don't personally affect, 
became so scared of the possibility of losing people. Politics, John, politics, right? <laughs> I, 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 I not to interrupt you there. <laughs> I, I always find it, I find it ludicrous that public opinion has any say in pioneers of industry. It doesn't have any, it doesn't have any say in military mm. decisions that that exactly. our people well that's completely put. out of the re- the realm of the public's decision making. Uh, to that point, though, I guess you probably have maybe you have to maybe it's like in the legal coding of this. You know, whatever these people sign, it's a you know indemnification of the company in case anything goes wrong. Because obviously, what we don't want sure. is we don't want this you know this hotel to be built and then you have a uh, a SpaceX. Uh, you know, what do call a starship, go up there with 200 people and blow up and die. And then nobody wants to go ever again. It, it's like you, we have to, I think, bake mm-hmm. decision making into the whole business model that stipulates, like, even if something fails, we still keep moving forward. Mm-hmm. But we'll also have to see, you know, is there enough money and enough overwhelming demand that, you know, people, even if there is high risk, that we still have people willing to shout out. And that's kind of something that we won't really be able to, I think, to predict until we see it in action maybe but i also feel like some of those business models at least have been run again for like 20 years i mean when you've got you know most of these companies who are going into the space tourism thing are are being built off of somebody else's fortune and i think that they're trying to figure they're figuring out the way to make this a profitable business i don't think it's it there's a vanity aspect to it but in some way they've been investing so much of their fortune into this that they're they're going to try to get some sort of return I mean, I, I, I think I think the sweet spot's ten grand. If you can make the whole trip ten grand mm-hmm. for the average consumer, you know, flight up three nights, flight down mm-hmm. ten grand plus food. Mm-hmm. A lot of people will do that instead of their two week safari that costs sure. ten grand. But it will take too. a long sure. time to get there because the amount of money. Yeah. Well, I think just uh, I mean, in terms of the amount of money needed to go towards physically you know, construction, all of the flights. I mean, that's, mm-hmm. it's going to be the, you know, it's by far and away the largest infrastructure project in space that has ever been constructed today. I mean, I don't, I'm not going to, I don't know here sitting here what the budget of the collective building of the ISS has been, but I'm willing to wager it's been that lot. it's been yeah. tens of billions <laughs> of dollars. Um, and so that's, it could be like in the hundred correct. billion. Yeah. yeah. The question is though, Matt, like will, does space tourism, ever need to appeal to the masses or does it actually generate Mm, enough mm -hmm. revenue off of a certain level of wealthy that it just never becomes accessible and then we're just at elysium (laughs) so uh just quick note nasa has spent 150 billion dollars to construct the iss plus four billion a year in maintenance yeah because i mean that's Mm -hmm. that's something too like you know they you're going to have to keep orbit boosting that hotel. Sure. I was, so you read, you read my mind. I was going to say, um, based on how orbits decay, how much would it cost just to make sure it doesn't crash I mean, it, into it Earth? Depends on, I mean, you'd have to count. Four billion a year. No. I mean, I'm going to say, I'm going to say four times that based on, you know, surface area sure. and mass. Yeah. <laughs> I'm just basing it on the the ISS. Um, (laughs) Um, Now, how do you think they're going to get it up there? Are they going to build it on Earth and then as one mm -hmm. structure 
and then just oh, shoot no, it not at all. No, they, I think that whatever it's it's if it's going to be built on Earth, it's going to be in portions that can fit inside SpaceX payloads. Yeah, like like a standard Saturn, yeah. a, a standard Falcon Nine uh, fairing, or you know, mm-hmm. if we're talking future tech here. If somebody all of a sudden busts out like the 3D printers and that can operate in a vacuum like we designed in Kuiper, then maybe True. they can do that. But that's also something too. Like we're now this is going to require question: robots or humans doing like long, yeah, like you build. know, long spacewalks. Mm-hmm. Well, I was gonna, I was gonna go as far as so you had alluded to the uh, time frame of about. 72 to 96 hours that you can be in space without exercising and it doesn't really affect you um what about staff this is a hotel yeah that's yeah. a big question i don't know because yeah. i mean if yeah in the models that they were saying if they can really big bring like 200 people up at a clip then i think they could probably just mm-hmm. keep rotating the staff out mm-hmm. so is, is it basically like a pilot Right, you got like three days on one. Yeah. I think off. so. To yeah, then yeah, that yeah. way, they don't have that to worry sense. about excessive long-term health effects. They don't have to worry about radiation risks. Mm-hmm. They don't have to, you know, worry about mm-hmm. you know having insane facilities to be able to work out. Mm-hmm. I also noticed that um, mm-hmm. it's going to be at lunar gravity level, which makes sense because that means that they don't need to build the ring as big slash they don't need to rotate it as quickly. Sure. So, so what does that mean, John? Mm-hmm. Can you explain? It means that usually in science fiction depictions, when we see a ship spinning uh, like the Hermes in the Martian, in reality, that would have been spinning much faster in order to achieve anything close to an Earth-like gravity. Uh, and so this is also true. If you have a a small uh, radius uh, donut or torus, um, the difference of the gravity that you feel between your head and your feet, it's called the Coriolis effect. It begins to have, you know, dizziness, vertigo, various physical effects on you. So we really need the ring to be at least, I think it's a 120 meters in diameter in order to get about two to three rpms and get uh to roughly earth gravity if you start going into higher rpms and nasa's done various experiments with this um to to some degree but there is limited physical ability to test this uh human bodies begin to have more you know (laughs) they can notice the fact that you're spinning this fast and it's not good like you know it begins to induce other Mm -hmm. physical effects so you know they'll keep the gravity lower so they can spin the ring slower, which won't cause as much effects on people's bodies, and then you won't have to build the ring as wide. Mm-hmm. So material saving. Also, isn't kind of the fun, at least maybe at the beginning, the kind of the fun is gonna be not feeling gravity. Like you're going up for the whole space experience, right? You want you want that mm-hmm. zero G feeling. It is, exactly. Yeah, how dope would it be for the bed to be on the roof? Yeah, well, yeah. The, the thing right? is- the, Again, Velcro yourself well, to the that, wall. That's just the thing though is, you know, <laughs> I agree that it would be very fun to bounce around while awake in zero G and, you know, fly from the floor to the ceiling and do cartwheels in the air. But when it comes to one, actually, you know, things like sleeping, um, other human activities, um, also like going to the bathroom, they're going to want the, you know, the benefit of gravity is really there. So you want both. 
sure. sure. <laughs> now, 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 Ben. Before you, you were given uh, a lot of great points about the the hotel. I have a. I, I don't know if it's like a dark side question, but uh-huh. the cynic in me wants to know if if any of these announcements, in your opinion, could be based off of the need of funding. And it's just hype right now, and the the plans aren't necessarily that real yet. Mm-hmm. As someone who's like really in tune with space education and the validity of some of these audacious uh, asks mm-hmm. of humanity, mm-hmm. you know, when I first saw it as someone not as cued into that stuff, I instantly said, "Well, I don't know if we could have a working space hotel in eight years." But maybe, maybe I'm wrong. Like, do you do, does that timeline that they're that they're saying that like the first guest will be in orbit by 2028 seem realistic? I don't know. You know, I would say a space hotel that doesn't have a rotating uh, rotating Porsche to it or something like that. Again, like what we're talking like a ISS sort of light or an ISS type hotel. I think that's probably doable. Although I have no idea. You know, it took. I mean, this is this is it's not a cynic, but this is sort of based on history, right? In space education, especially, I don't know how many times for now over twenty years I've been telling people, "Oh yeah, we're gonna go to Mars," or you know, when I went to space camp, which I won't say when, <laughs> the ISS had already been the ISS hadn't even been up there yet, and it had, but I had been learning about it in like junior high, so like. Who now? Who knows what the timelines are on these things? I guess one sort of factor is those were all based on of you know government timelines and NASA and stuff like that. Things are a little bit different, um, but but I, you know I that's just it's an incredible amount of capital and um, and I don't know of any facilities who are building modules right now. So it's basically like, hey, here's our plans. We've done all this thinking about it, but just to get the manufacturing up to speed and things like that, I'm not sure. I'm not sure where they're at, and if eight years is too ambitious just to be able to build this stuff. Um, that, 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 yeah, I, I agree with that thought process because you know, like to that point, it's like if a uh, if a room is misbuilt at a hotel, it's not really a big deal. <laughs> you just fix it. Right. You can't really fix things that easily when right. they're in orbit. Right, right, right. So yeah. it really has to be built like perfect. From right. the jump. Matt, I think right. when right. when I sent you that link about the space hotel, I believe the first thing you sent back to me in a text was, I'll believe it when I see them begin construction in orbit. And <laughs> and I agree. I mean, just based <laughs> if I'm looking at the rate at which things are built of, you know, human history and and space technology, mm-hmm. no, I don't think that an eight-year timeline is gonna is gonna work for this. I'd love to be wrong. Yeah. I would love <laughs> to be wrong. I, I mm-hmm. there's nothing that I would like more than to be up in orbit yeah. at a hotel. That sounds so yeah. cool. Absolutely. I listen. All these all these like hey, we'll you know we'll donate a seat on a SpaceX flight or whatever these things. I feel like there've been two or three in the past couple of weeks. It's only been time that's prevented me from putting my name in there as I'm the president of the Space <laughs> Museum. It would be a great PR thing to have somebody like me go up there. I would go up. Oh, we got to get you up there. We should we should we should start a campaign. <laughs> Start of putting science, science fiction campaign. How well would you want the technology proven out? Kind of looping back to what we were talking about before. 
I think the SpaceX stuff is fine. Okay. I think um, again, there, I was reading. I'm going to try to find it, but I was reading the uh, um, this Japanese billionaire, yes. and it seems like the technology isn't quite there. Yusaka um, Mizawa. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, no, I, I would say I'd say that's like uh, that's like Musk is Tony Stark, and Saka is uh, Hammer Industries. And it's just not. <laughs> The, that I do believe, yet. though, when they say 2023 for that, I don't know. I actually do get a feeling that they are really going to try to hit that date. But sure. Oh, I know. I know. I know. Inequivocally, that they're planning to start orbiting Earth with payloads on Starship by July. That is mm. uh, that is a hard date for them over there um for starship which goes in line with the 2023 note you just said john for mm-hmm. like real mars missions but moon missions moon missions yes mm-hmm. uh, I'm, I'm of the belief that you have to you need you need more elons right we need to have like more people care to try to push the envelope mm-hmm. which is uh which is interesting and, and that kind of leads me into my next kind of question which is you know if we're going to start building civilization up in space and um, I'm not Gene Rottenberry who uh, thinks that it's all going to be fairy tales and lollipops, there's going to be um, um, conflict in space. And mm-hmm. uh, obviously a, uh, as we uh, alluded to last time we recorded, which will come out before this. So it's a little bit of a time jump. Mm-hmm. Uh, M16s won't really work in space. <laughs> For, for some obvious reasons so from from a from a weapons array point of view let's uh let's dive into some of the the classics and uh let's talk about how real they can be and i mean no first and foremost uh let's talk about the most fictional uh which is the lightsaber right mm. how how realistic is it to have a lightsaber working i mean there is a company now who makes a lightsaber out of late out of like laser fire um but it has a massive backpack you have to wear with it right 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 um working limp light i'm gonna look it up real quick uh it uh, so it's it's from hacks hacksmith industries and uh, they have a four thousand degree plasma proto lightsaber and uh, we'll put the uh, the YouTube link in the uh, description of this show because it's pretty wild yeah. to see. Have have you have you seen it, Ben? I've seen the video, of it. yeah, it's pretty amazing. Yeah, it's yeah. it's pr- so. So, w- what do you think about like a real lightsaber in like ten years or twenty years? Like, is it a capacity issue? Like, how how could it work if it was well, to work? I think it's a kyber crystal <laughs> issue, honestly. <laughs> Uh, but no, I think it's, uh, um, <laughs> anyway, so, but you know, to put that, that thing in context, the way that I, the way that it seemed like that thing was working was it was just like an acetylene torch on steroids. Right. So it's like, you've got, uh, it, it's not an, I don't think it's an electromagnet. It's not like a focused beam of energy or anything like that. It's like a, you've got that fuel that you're burning to, to kind of get that super focused, um, that super hot, you know, flame basically coming out of it. So, um, 
so yeah i mean it just it you know again it's like it takes a ton of energy to go in and what are you getting out of it i mean there's a couple of things one i think how practical is that thing i don't know there might be some industrial uses for it so that might spur and move move the um uh move the development a little farther um i think it's just a fun thing it's going to be something that you know somebody keeps sort of working on and kind of toiling with and and that's about it um but i think you know, I also don't want to discount the fact that it has a huge backpack because, you know, 40 years ago, cell phones had a huge backpack and now they're in our hands. So I, you know, I want to be optimistic. Um, I'm just not really sure. I think what might really spur it is if there's some, you know, practical industrial use for this thing. I don't think we're, I don't think the practical industrial use for this thing is protecting the Republic for, from its enemies. No, but that's a, that's a great point because you know, the thing that I find most fascinating about my Elon Musk, not a flamethrower is how many people used it to shovel their driveways. Exactly. Yeah. Right. Winter. Exactly. Yep. Uh-huh. Right. And that, that that's yeah. an industrial use per se. Yeah. You know, I was, I was going to say for industrial use, you know, um, salvage or, I mean, there's, you know, there's giant ship breaking fields in mm-hmm. parts of the world. I mean, if you could slice through sure, sure. metal yeah. with a you know with a guided plasma beam and hack things apart at a, at a much faster rate, yeah. or maybe even um, you know a type of and we have laser cutting and water jetting. I don't know if it would eventually have a a material right. cutting application. But also to that point, well, there's also some other scientific reasons why. Like, I think that we would have to at least get to fusion and be able to miniaturize a fusion reactor into Mm. the handle as well as have a magnetic field capable of containing a plasma stream but then also what are you generating the plasma stream from like that you know a a lightsaber is almost like i mean it breaks the laws of physics for a variety of reasons but it also significantly breaks the law of conservation (laughs) math it's like got a whole bunch of plasma that's coming from nowhere so i mean unless it's like pulling it out of the air and right right condensing it in real time but i mean that i feel like you're talking about have you seen the hacksmith industries uh lightsaber i know i i know what you're talking about but just i mean i you know it's yes cell phones used to be you know have battery packs that were huge but i think uh, a lightsaber is more like Mm -hmm. fitting a nuclear power plant into your cell phone and that's Mm -hmm. many many mm-hmm. leaps for i mean i sure. think that's like 100 200 years that that's not a near future thing yeah yeah but that's that, but that's not i mean how you contain a plasma stream into like a stable rod with no with only containment at one end is still we can't explain right. you know we can't don't know the math for that that that's outside of our current understanding of physics right you know, when you're talking about um, when you're talking about the the proton or the uh, like plasma stream and stuff like that, that actually makes me think more about um, uh, Ghostbusters proton yes. packs. Oh wow, those are great. Yeah, because that was they were supposed to have. I think there was like a reactor. It was supposed to be a reactor in them, um, and that's what that's what caused the the whole. Thing I think you work. could definitely have a plasma gun. You know, you know that's. There's plenty of, but what or a phaser? I think it's much. I think it. I, think I don't even know what a phaser is. <laughs> okay, in order of degrees of energy use, I think it would go 
a ball of plasma to burn a hole in somebody, a laser blast, and then actually the amount of energy it would require to disassemble somebody's atoms and vaporize them is the same issue, power issue we have when talking about having a transporter. It would be like the entire output of mm -hmm. Earth for a year. That's just not practical as a weapon. I mean, there's also that too. Like, I mean, what what is the practicality of some <laughs> of the weapons of sci-fi versus physical weapons? And that kind of loops back to your point to right. Stargate when they were finding that, you know, human projectile weapons was were effective against the replicators, whereas more advanced energy weapons were not. Right. The Asgard in Stargate um, uh, had a great line where they where Thor tells Carter effectively your inferior intelligence is going to be what saves <laughs> us here because we can't think that dumb. I thought it was really, really funny when uh, when they did that because that, 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 that's the scene that happens right as they uh, destroy the replicators with earthbound weapons is that these Asgards who are like effectively gray aliens who mm -hmm. posed as uh, uh, Valhalla and uh, Asgardians, such a great concept, um, are so advanced that the idea of the type of weapons and strategies that Earth uses is so inferior to anything they would think of, which is why they need to use Earth to defeat the replicators, which is like the greatest burn <laughs> slash please help our civilization I've ever it, it heard. Makes, like, I'll use another example. In Doom, before, in, if you go way back in the prequels and before they had shields, they didn't really use laser weapons because once again, they were just mm. still like bulky and energy efficient and they still use projectiles and missiles and then mm -hmm. only and then well when shields got invented they found out if you hit a, la a shield with a laser it creates a nuclear explosion and everybody loses which is also an interesting concept too of like you know what if you have great weapons but then they end up coming up against like the ultimate nullifier you know you create a shield but it's useless against a laser like Mm -hmm. So what does that mean? Does that mean that you use shields and give up lasers, or does it mean that you like play this dangerous game of, mm -hmm. you know, like arms chicken? You know, it's like what you got. <laughs> I mean, that's that's effectively what we're in now. Exactly. <laughs> yeah. since, since 1945, here we are. Yeah. I mean, how many how many nukes are in a stockpile? Like twenty thousand. Yeah, yeah. It's like some outrageous yeah. number of bombs that we have stored mm -hmm. just as a like you bomb us we bomb you everything's over mm -hmm. uh it would probably be we'd probably be a more copacetic civilization if we just all had like uh, artificial dome force fields across everything that we were just had deterrence where bombs are almost irrelevant because well, they I mean, wouldn't that's, work that's, anyway. the, that's the principle yeah. of yeah. missile shields but you don't really right. get to test those too much you know it's you know <laughs> right so what about the other ultimate uh ultimate defense mechanism which is the iron man suit right that's why i use mm. the quotes on quotes but like how real is some sort of exoskin for you know lack of a more scientific term iron man suit i've seen a few bulky things that boston mm -hmm. dynamics is working on which you know honestly look like justin hammer uh, <laughs> contraptions but you know 
arc reactor energy source aside mm-hmm. is the construction of some sort of exoskin for soldiers to step in make sense or would just you build a robot g-forces mm. yeah. I, mean, yeah. I love the iron man films but that in that first one when tony stark gets hit in the face by tank shell like i'm sorry he doesn't have some sort of special inertial dampening like physics breaking tech in that just I, you can't <laughs> handle that. humans human, humans can only handle sure, you know, of course. a handful of g's maybe yeah up to 10 or 12 G's for short durations. And like, even if you had the type of uh, the juice from the expanse, I I think that the suit capabilities will so drastically outstrip the human driver um, that it just doesn't make sense. I mean, it it makes more sense to build it. It's, it's like what whiplash did, Mm -hmm. you know, in in Iron Man too. It's just like, got you know, solve the problem, got rid of the pilot, turned them into robots. Mm -hmm. Um, but then Skynet. Mm-hmm. Well, not even Skynet. Mm-hmm. Here's a question. It's it's. I feel like you know. Of course, we're we're sitting in America where <laughs> we hear about our drone strikes killing other people. I don't want to. I'm not. I'm not right. diminishing lives by comparisons. What I'm doing here is, it's. I think though, still, it's even like one. It, we can still feel removed about shooting somebody with a drone missile from miles away. But to have totally. one of our yeah. robots. Like yeah. walk into somebody's house and kill someone, I think is going to, we reach the Terminator fear point. Like all of a sudden, all those things that mm. I think like policy in the terms of warfare and stuff like that, as soon as we, as soon as we start going to robots on the ground fighting, like the rules of engagement are going to all of a sudden have to drastically change or like UN policies or, or just like all of a sudden abject non-acceptance of what's going on. And you're going to see even, even crazier levels of revolution. Isn't that a sci-fi right. story, right? One country builds robots. The other country builds robots. The robots start killing each other. The robots turn sentient. They realize that they're just effectively meat piles for these humans to go back and forth with. Robots band together to kill all humans. Or, right? Isn't that isn't that that path? Uh, yeah, kind of. But I actually I take it a step back and almost I use raised by wolves as an example. That is the atheist versus the religious. Did you watch that, Ben? Yeah, and that it's the religious using mm-hmm. Uh, mm-hmm. robots, androids to kill so they, their souls stay clean. You know, and what kind? Just what kind of? I think that's the psyche battle. Is then you have this. You create the ultimate enemy. You at first it's proxy wars, but sooner or later you're gonna have machine. You're gonna have people fighting machines, and it's going to be like fighting the Nazis and fighting the droids in Star Wars and fighting the aliens in Independence Day. And it's going to create a new level of zealot because you've removed any last scrap of humanity out of war. I agree. Interesting. The other side of it, though, is, is that if you're, if there is no, if there aren't any stakes, if you're just putting robots against robots, then, then kind of you. Well, wouldn't that be a financial stake at that point? Maybe, but I mean, it doesn't seem like there are pretty high sure. financial stakes right now with with armies of people. So, um, but I mean, maybe it would be nice, and maybe this is very optimistic, but it'd be nice if then there was a question of like, all right, 
we really have no point in doing this. Like what, what's another way that we can resolve this conflict or, or, you know, what do you want? Okay. And this is what I have, you know, something like that. But, um, but it seems like there are, yeah, there's just, there's no public state. I mean, especially, you know, in a country of that's, you know, an all volunteer army and stuff like that. Like we as a state have a vested interest in keeping our soldiers alive. And they're doing it for a reason and all that kind of stuff. And that also, if you're a leader, that keeps people engaged in the conflict um, or at least supporting it in the first place. But if it's just a bunch of, you know, drones, then you, you know, you, you remove the humanity from it. Then you also start to remove the, the reason for caring and, you know, for allocating funds for this kind of stuff and things like that. I so, mean, I don't know. That, that's, a, that's an interesting perspective so do you think that there might be an arc where we go to a robot v robot war and then that actually ends all wars because to your point the stakes would be kind of gone and then it would create like almost an a fallout diffusion because both sides would be like well Nobody died. Right. There's no remorse, but we both just lost like three trillion dollars. So maybe there's a better way to do this. What are right. the situations right. of where I do agree? Um, I think there is merit in that idea, and that we could end up finding it to be pointless. But also, like, what are the situations of where you have two robot armies battling that you don't have some human aspect at stake? You know, are we unless we're literally, you know. I guess we're you're battling for resources on the moon of a bunch of robots versus others until like what there's just one group standing and then they get to mine. Yeah, yeah, I guess. I mean, that's the thing is this is goes back to your comment about what are the rules of war? Like, what constitutes victory? Then the like, piles of piles of metal and machinery, and whoever whoever has the the least amount of of dilapidated parts wins. Or what's but the here, what's but the deal? Also so with, when you, but, but if you remove human deaths as a consequence, I think it could go the direction of it's pointless, mm -hmm. but it could also go the direction of well, you know, if all we need to do is just keep building more of these things, then we can keep doing this forever. Sure. Well, listen, I uh, not to. Oh, we're skirting the edge of political, but um, you know the the deterrent policy of the of the nuclear deterrent policy is in some ways justified because of this very fact, and it's the stalemate of having these large stockpiles have kept at least nuclear war at bay for seventy, which almost to keeps years. war at bay. But we're still spending a ton of money. Sure, to a certain extent, although it's also been super. I mean, we've had tons of oh. conflict since World War Two. And we're still spending a lot of money on war and there's still in some ways a huge also not to get personal john but there is, is a there? huge industry out there <laughs> that provides lots of jobs because that provides a lot of jobs for people to just kind of feed that and you know yes that right that and, is and a actually that, that brings up a great point ben is is companies you know, I'm trying to be delicate about this. Is country uh, countries is companies like Blue Origin and SpaceX going to create an opportunity for there to be companies that can push the envelope of space and exploration without selling mm. their soul, right? Because right now you can't do one without the other, right? 
any company that pushes the, and I'm not going to name names for for obvious reasons, but any company right, right. that pushes the edge of exploration also makes all of their actual money by being a defense contractor. And is there is yeah. there like um, space uh, Blue Origin and I was about to say Space Oasis. God, I was. It's a it's a company in Kuiper. <laughs> That's good. By the way, you guys have been doing a great job just sort of sliding in the plugs on this episode. I have to say, they've just been, they've been coming. I love it. Uh, Matt, I think though, looping back to the space hotel, perhaps if industry, there's just enough industry that, you know, somebody has the breakthrough. Well, actually, I mean, take this back. I mean, uh, uh, Virgin Galactic, that division doesn't run military right that's blue origin no, that's oh no no sorry no, uh, yeah virgin galactic no is blue no origin. virgin yeah. galactic is is no, under richard branson no, no blue origin yeah Bezos. so i was saying yeah. you know that that one doesn't have a military route so i mean yeah i think it, the tourism industry will eventually open that right. i mean i mean also with the exception of like government mm-hmm. because mm-hmm. nasa by its yeah yeah and- but i see what you're saying because like how much did nasa build off of all the military research and r d that happened before it was utilized on a yeah, <laughs> I, you know, but you bring up a really interesting point because I think, um, I mean, I don't, yeah, I don't know how how easy it is to pull these things apart, but I do remember, I remember talking to a retired, um, a retired engineer from Rockwell, and how he he would talk a lot about how well, so he was he worked with North American Aviation, which became Rockwell, and he was talking about the Apollo program, and he was talking about how he and his, all of his young buddies there early you know uh, young engineers they were all really happy to be working on this stuff because it wasn't for military purposes that it was for for in their minds it was for exploration and pushing humanity forward um but it was which is great but it was also strikingly like wait a minute there's a whole other division to your company that is that is not doing that (laughs) um and so the project you're working on yes that's great but you know there's I mean, I mean, another great example of that is, uh, you know, famously with Warner von Braun and the V2 rocket. It was uh, mm-hmm. according to him. Totally. Right. And you'll never really know the full story. It was totally for German exploration. Right, right. And then it was used for obviously other purposes. That <laughs> example aside, you know, I think there is something to be said also for, you know, men of power to and women of power no no sexism here to um take advantage of brilliant people um whether or not they're complicit or not Mm -hmm. i think there is you Mm -hmm. know you know someone like an einstein or an oppenheimer and and you i've watched you know reels and tapes of the of oppenheimer specifically talk about you know creating Mm -hmm. the atomic bomb and his you know, mm-hmm. it, you almost feel for him in the sense that, like, he couldn't not know if he could do it, regardless of the consequences it would create. Right. right? right. The, the scientist in him had to know if he could yeah. do this, if he could split the atom. Right. But then other men of power right. used it in a horrific ways. And, and I think that paradigm mm-hmm. is is mm-hmm. is threaded throughout history across science and war right is is Mm -hmm. that is that need for both of those things and you know it kind of brings us back to the loop that if 
if we are always predicated on shielding rather than mad, right? Mutually assured destruction, we might already have a space hotel mm -hmm. because the things that you would work on would be skewed mm -hmm. in a different in a different light. You you would be you wouldn't mm -hmm. be thinking about how mm -hmm. to create a bigger weapon because you've already kind of, it'd be pretty easy to max out your shielding quickly. Like within a 40 to 50 year period, it, mm -hmm. it, once you're shielded, you're shielded, right? With bombs, it's like, okay, well we can make it bigger and we can keep making it bigger and more explosive. So there's always a scale up there. Whereas shielding, if you're protected- yeah, you're I think protected. I think that shielding would scale with the comparable weapons being fired at it. I think they they interplay off of each other. And it's it's an infinite escalation cycle, but I mean you could argue that the nature of escalation technologically because of conflict is what has moved us as quickly as it as it has. But yeah, I mean I I don't know I mean again we're kind of like if we really want to shift the paradigm then let's get off that that business model right? But no, I, I, I don't yeah, know when that's I, I think you're uh, you know the the irony to what you just said is. There's actually proof in that. And again, not getting political, but just using facts. The most profitable part of NASA was when they were just curious. They created the microwave and they get a royalty on every microwave <laughs> ever sold in the world because they own that patent and they own many other patents. And those were founded or discovered from curiosity not from the war machine, right? So if you think of that as your mm -hmm. uh, as your guiding light, if you if you do more exploration like that, maybe you find more curious things to still profit off of, still make tons of money, but just shifting the business model, as you said. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and and I agree with you. I think that you know there is a compulsion to to do certain things, and um, I think Oppenheimer knew what he was getting into but i also think that there was you know you hear it in, with scientists all the time that there is a drive to sort of like figure this thing out and there's a whole you know there's a whole genre in the 50s mostly about like the the flip side of that which is like you know if it can be done must it be done that big question of if if we can find this stuff out and do all these things but you know who's who's asking the question should we be doing which it? is what elon's been saying recently about ai yeah right so i mean these are again this is like dialogue based questions and not things that are driven by other outside forces but it's like you have to have a conversation you, about this and make do a decision. you guys think we should be diving into ai as if it's like the gold rush and not really thinking about what it is well, I mean, it's what are you? I think it's what are you trying to achieve with the AI? I mean, AI in businesses are used to try to increase efficiency of systems. You know, creating a truly sentient machine. You know, what are we trying to prove? I mean, is is it to prove that we literally can? Because if that's the case, then probably not. You know, is it because we are looking for some? Is it because you know the second that robot wakes up, it's you know the thing is, is it also because we're expecting if we can figure out how to create something that can think so exponentially more than us, then it's going to find the answers for us faster. All, all I know yeah. is Facebook 
had a AI program that talked back to it and they shut it down and it got like one article about <laughs> it in like Thomson Reuters and then no one else talked about it. And I'm over here looking at it. I'm like, uh, this thing like semi-sentienced and the AI team at Facebook was so scared that they just shut it all down and burned it. And no one's talking about this. And I was just like, that freaked me out when I was reading about that. But I think that still probably <laughs> was the correct decision. Oh, with, no, 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 no. I, I, let me let me be ultra clear with my position. I sit where Elon right. Musk sits, which is we should explore it, but there should be regulations. Just like you can't go build a nuclear bomb in your backyard, you shouldn't be able to try to incept sentient AI on your home computer. And and then that, that is basically his, mm -hmm. you know, there's obviously a lot more, but that's the, the broad strokes of it. And I, I think that it is insane that we have zero governmental or worldwide regulations on what we can and oh, yeah. cannot do when it comes well, to we're AI. Well, we have on top of that, you know, if we mm -hmm. people do come up with AI, and I, I found this as a very interesting tidbit. I just read The Golden Age by John C. Wright. And one of the rules they have in this far, is this far future society is, if you end up making a sentient being in your dreamscape, in your computer program, doesn't matter if it was accident on purpose, that being now has rights and you are now their, you know, essentially their caretaker and basically slash parent and responsible for, you know, guiding them and explaining the world to them. You know, and this is really made Black Mirror episodes about this as well. If you make a duplicate of a human consciousness, you know, we can't just be deleting those creating them messing with them same thing even if it's you know if we deem it as a machine mind it needs to have rights and so also as soon as it's sentient i think you can you lose the you lose the scientific paradigm of being able to you know explore it and test it and and all of those other things so in the same way that we can't you know do tests on us on a sentient human so isn't it almost self but we do do tests on a sentient monkey. It's falling out of favor. Thank God. But 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 the dark side is it's yeah. going to take a long time before somebody considers a sentient robot, if and when we get there, to have the same rights as a sentient monkey. Well, that's the Star Trek Next Generation. It's going to take. I mean, what, even years data in the future, I guess, until we was, have, we was this, controversial, right? right? Like right. even right, even even that's in what I'm saying, yeah. that paradigm. To your point, Ben. There's that episode, I don't know, season three probably, where his rights are put on trial because they're not sure if yep. he has any rights. And, uh, you know, even in that society right. where they meet aliens, where they have spacefaring cities, right? Because the Enterprise is effectively a city. It's, mm -hmm. um, they still aren't sure if robots right. can be, have rights. That. That's a great point. I think anything that, that has mm -hmm. that has the will to defend itself, if that is and defend its own existence, if that's not programming specifically, then I disagree with you, John. Because I'm going to plug Kuiper, like Ben tells us to plug more. The <laughs> the um, the drones in Void Whispers 
in chapter one, I'm blanking on what we called them, have no aversion to death, but they are sentient True. beings. I guess I'm talking, but that was also their hmm. conscious choice. I'm talking about that, like, if you have a, if you have a, I'm going to use um, Ex Machina as an example. You know, Ava, she is something fighting for her existence that others don't deem to be real. But I think just like the, okay, it's not an end all, I see what you're saying. That is not a sole metric. I'm saying I think that that is a metric. Exactly. And, and ex machina let's just unpack that for a second because you bring up a great point and that is probably from the ai standpoint what worries me the most which is not a coalition mm. of people experimenting on ai in a bad way whereas that is definitely an issue but in ex machina it's a single genius who's created ai and is so deluded or misplaced in his judgment that he turns this hyper-intelligent being against humanity, right? And unbeknownst to the rest of the mm-hmm. world, right? That movie ends with your assumption that Ava's going to kill everyone because of one man's inability, because of mm-hmm. one man's torturing, right? One serial killer effectively tortured and imprisoned a, a, a girl and you know we we deal with those by putting them to death or life in jail right like we have a system in place for people that create those sort of crimes but a a sentient robot will not have the remorse on our species in my opinion that a victim has remorse for the system giving them justice Right, that that robe, that sentient robot's um, mm. um, empathy is not going to be with society. They're going to look at that one person as humanity because they're I the other. Argue, though, though, that's you know, scary. I think that you could say that's human thinking, and that a robot, a sentient robot, would understand that a single example of a human is not representative of the species as a whole. And and I I understand where you're coming from. And this is all conjecture, so I'm not saying I agree or disagree. But I think another way to look at that future is if you've got AI that's become sentient and it's based off of whatever inputs we put in there, um, there's a good chance that they might actually feel just because they're a sentient robot doesn't mean that they don't feel remorse because the idea of of sentience or something like that could there could be an outcome where all these sort of fears of sort of the of the of the un, of the ai gone totally cold or like the, you know the terminator or something like that might not actually exist because maybe one of the outcomes of ai is that they become just as feeling as the rest of us or have the same sort of um you know uh, moral issues or something like that i don't know but um the the vision versus Ultron paradigm. Exactly. That's what I was just gonna. Exactly. Exactly. Uh, so unfortunately, John is a loser. Okay. I watched. I watched it all. Okay. Okay. <laughs> yeah. John, John texted me okay, on Thursday good, good. and said he's caught up, and I was like, "Does that mean you've watched all of it?" He's like, "No, I'm only on episode five. I didn't realize there was more." Yeah, and I was like, I "What are you doing?" Watch the season. I was like. WandaVision, and you were just like, I haven't watched. And I interpreted that as you hadn't watched anything, which was ludicrous in retrospect to think that you hadn't done. But uh, 
No, it was awesome. I don't want to. Go- <laughs> hey, man, I just didn't watch the episode that come out three hours before that. Text That's message. true. It, it was it was on Friday night. It was like right at the mo- you would I could see. Right, right. <laughs> uh, I want to kind of if we pause for a second. What I mean, are we are we going to talk about it all here? Do we not want to spoil? Spoil? Yeah. No, it's not. There's no science in it. It's all it's all magic. You know, putting the yeah, fantasy yeah, yeah. in. in, yeah, yeah, yeah. in, in yeah. Yeah. I, I do think though, just as a a broad observation that that was one of the most intelligently written pieces of Marvel that I've seen in terms of like how many, how many uh, conversations between characters sure. were, com- were real conversations that people had and real questions about like who could beat who, or she was just like, Oh, did you use a probability hex? Mm-hmm. And you're just like, um, mm-hmm. just small, small. <laughs> Mm-hmm. I, I I will say mm-hmm. the mm-hmm. um the one sciencey thing about it that does tie perfectly into this conversation and it was in in the final mm-hmm. episode yeah. which Sean you did watch right you watched the whole thing um where uh the you know mm-hmm. conception of vision created through Wanda's uh, uh, mm-hmm. affiliation to the Soul Stone had the you know ability to be self aware as a robot which um Mm -hmm. which was fascinating watching that arc happen throughout the nine episodes i thought was really Mm -hmm. well done and to your point ben might be how uh sentience happens when it comes to ai which is you know the you know Mm -hmm. the uh delusion that they're human the anger that they've been used Mm -hmm. and the understanding of what they are right and then you kind of see that arc happen uh, mm-hmm. throughout the show which is really mm-hmm. really interesting so from a science mm-hmm. standpoint that could mm-hmm. be the roadmap of how sentient ai happens could be but that that, that is from a science mm-hmm. point of view mm-hmm. uh, something i thought yeah. you know really interesting and and the and the the to your point john the beautifully written metaphor of the oak and wood and boat was um uh, the pieces mm-hmm. was really mm-hmm. really well placed mm-hmm. um yeah but then on the yeah, flip side you absolutely. could have james spader and ultron kill everyone which i would have watched with equal <laughs> true that uh, is true i mean but but see i do think that that uh, so, so but but i i did want to bring that up before before we tangented there for a second because ben i do worry you know as you said the ai would be you know inputted with memories of American history, uh, Earth history, and, um, and and maybe potentially have empathy mm-hmm, from mm-hmm. it, but you know the the reality mm-hmm. is, if if a bipartisan impartial entity was downloaded the entirety of Earth's history at once, <laughs> you know uh-huh. I fear that their interpretation of that would be. So the only history that matters is that of the victor and not of the actual I think they'd have, this, they'd, have, they'd have the fifth element moment. Sure. I'm... Where Lilu is reading up on the history of the Earth, and it kind of breaks her. Mm. <laughs> <laughs> That's oh, a better right, example. Right, right. Only because Mike Myers' performance <laughs> when, when that happened was just fantastic. <laughs> he is amazing. <laughs> That dude is hysterical. I actually, not not to tangent too much, I (laughs) used to have a massive phobia of the movie Halloween 
I used to get like really scared watching it because I saw too young. Oh, well. So because of that, I couldn't watch Austin mm-hmm. Powers for years because I was really scared of the character named Mike Myers who played Austin Powers. The the connection of the two really screwed me Just up. Hearing the kid. name, you thought, nope, I can't. <laughs> wow. Wow. I was really traumatized by by Halloween's Mike Myers. <laughs> That's amazing. Uh, wow. Wow. I, I think I was like wow. six. Well. And, you know, legitimately, and, and I'm sure, Ben, you can appreciate this. I was the only father on here. I had to have my mom and or dad sit in my bedroom for three years while I went to bed every night because I thought Mike Myers was in the closet and about to kill me. And I could not fall asleep unless wow. if I had a protector Who, in the room with me. was it that you watched Halloween at six? My, my buddy David, <laughs> who was demented and loved horror, just like put it on and knew I was adverse to horror. When Like now I think it's really fascinating. But when I was a kid, I was really adverse to watching anything right. horror. Like, and he knew this and he was like, it's not that scary. And sure. then like she gets thrown in the hot tub and like melts. Oh, no. And I'm like dying. I'm like, my life is over. I can't sleep anymore. Oh, my God. What did your parents do? Did you beat him? Were you ever allowed over to his house again? No, unfortunately, um, he was like my best friend, and his dad was like our soccer coach. And there was really no way of unraveling the friendship at all. So they just kind of had to eat it. But I did, but I will say in retrospect, and this is probably yeah. the first time I'm thinking about it, I did have a lot more sleepovers at his house after that. I wonder if that was my parents telling him, he's your problem from what you did. Right. <laughs> you have to pay for rehabilitation. Exactly. <laughs> 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 That's funny. It was a moment That's for good. sure. <laughs> uh, so the, uh, I, I, I want I want to wrap up this. This was a really good one. I, I think for our listeners, we'll cut it into a part one, part two. You know, until next time, guys. Uh, stay curious uh, and thanks so much. Thanks, guys. Take Bye. Care. Bye.